Well, I actually want to read the entirety of Psalm 45 to begin. It is 17 verses, and perhaps it's been a while since you've read Psalm 45. So let's see it all together, these 17 verses of the psalm. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Hmm. Well, that is a special psalm. I'm uh, assuming you saw some things in there along the way that you want to know more about, that perhaps a verse or two jumped out at you or a phrase and you thought, what does that mean? Well, uh, this is a very special psalm, and the setting for this psalm is clearly a royal wedding celebration. We have a king here, and we have this daughter, verse 10, who's being brought to the king on this wedding day. The psalmist, the author of the psalm, tells us his purpose in the first verse. Look back at verse 1. His heart overflows with a good theme, he says, and he's addressing his verses to the king. This is a great day of celebration for all involved. It's a magnificent day, and the king is glorified. In history, this was a real wedding. Something real happened with real people on this day. Uh, Perhaps King Solomon is in view or someone else. We just don't have all those details. But there was a royal wedding that day, and there was a king who was magnified among the people. But we should be struck with the reality that the psalmist here ascribes certain attributes to this king and to his wedding that simply 
burst the boundaries of creaturely existence. There's so much said here that is so astonishing, so awesome, so wonderful, and even terrible, we could say, that this goes beyond a mere creaturely wedding. This king goes beyond a mere creaturely king. In a sense, each one of these attributes that are ascribed to the king could be said of a human in one way or another, a human who's in a special privileged position given to him by God. Even the title God that's given to the king here, we know that sometimes in Israel, a person would be brought to a judge and God said that that person was being brought to God because that person was ruling in God's place with God's authority on the earth. But when you put all of these elements together, is there any one creature of whom all of these things could be said? I think not. Or to borrow a, an old Shakespearean phrase, methinks not so. <laughs> Let's look at these attributes of the king. We'll just run our eyes briefly back over this psalm. Verse 2, it says, "...the king is fairer than the sons of men." Again in verse 2, "...he has grace on his lips." Verse 3, he bears a sword, and he bears this sword in splendor and in majesty. Verse 3, he holds the title of Mighty One. That's important. Verse 4, the end of verse 4, this king is taught by his own right hand. Wow. Verse 5, he rules over the peoples. He's a ruler over others. Verse 6, he has a throne. He has the title of God. Also in verse 6, he possesses a kingdom, and this kingdom contains righteousness. Verse 7, this king is anointed and exalted by God, a special privileged position given to him by God, even as he holds the title God. Starting in verse 10, we learn about the daughter. Let's look at some of those details too. That term for daughter is simply a term of endearment, this bride who is being brought to the king. Verse 10, she's called to let go of past relationships to embrace this new relationship. And of course, that's true of marriages, isn't it? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and a woman shall leave her father and mother, and they will be joined together as one flesh. Verse 11, the bride is called to submit to the lordship of the king. The king who loves her, she's told specifically to bow down to him. Verse 12, she's told that she holds a privileged position. She has a privileged position. Verse 13, she's all glorious within. What a phrase. The bride is all glorious within. Verse 14, she's led to the king. She's presented to the king in splendor and in purity, beauty and majesty. Verse 15, she's arrayed with gladness and rejoicing. And it says in verse 15, to possess the king's palace. The bride is going to enter into and share in the king's palace. And then the last two verses, the psalmist goes back to speaking to the king. Verse 16, there will be many sons who will be princes coming from this king. In place of his fathers, there will be sons who are princes. They will be reigning throughout the earth. Verse 17, the king's name will remain prominent forever, and the king will receive praise forever and ever. How amazing this psalm is. How astonishing. 
And you should be getting the point now. I, I imagine we're all kind of catching up and understanding that beyond a merely human king and his bride, this is speaking of King Jesus and his people. The Messiah King, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. Ultimately, that is who is in view. This psalm is about Jesus. Now, I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be up on the screen. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the author of Hebrews actually takes from this psalm and applies it directly to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. So you see here that the author of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than the angels. All throughout Hebrews, we're learning that Jesus is greater than and better than all creatures. Okay, verse 7, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says this, this is Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's taken directly from the psalm we just read. The Father has anointed Jesus in this special way. And so in Psalm 45, when we read that Jesus is fairer than the sons of men, that the king here is fairer than all other people, we know that Jesus is the fairest, isn't he? There's even a hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. And when he came in the flesh, there wasn't anything outwardly about him that was especially fair, but inwardly he was fair, right? Outwardly, he was very average. You read about that in Isaiah. There was nothing about him that was special. But inwardly, from the heart, has there been anybody fairer than Lord Jesus? Well, certainly not. When we read in Psalm 45 that King Jesus bears a sword in splendor and in majesty, well, we recognize that Jesus is a valiant warrior, isn't he? King Jesus is a warrior. If you've read Revelation, you know that he's coming back, the rider on a white horse, that he does bear a sword. And what's amazing about Jesus bearing a sword, Jesus being the king, is that he has the most holy cause. There's never been a warrior who's had a holier cause than Jesus. And so as his people, as the bride of Christ, we should call him back for victory. We should call upon Lord Jesus and say, come back and have victory over all the peoples of the earth. When we read in Psalm 45 that Jesus holds the title of Mighty One and has the title of God, as it says in verses 3 and 6, we know that at the end of the day, this is speaking of the Son of God. He is God Himself. In verse 4, Jesus, the Son of God, is taught by His own right hand. He didn't need the book of Proverbs. Do you need the book of Proverbs? <laughs> Some of you more than others, right? But we all need it at the end of the day. Well, Jesus is the author of the book of Proverbs. He's taught by Himself, the only one who could be taught by Himself, God. 
When we read in Psalm 45, 5 that the Son of God rules over the peoples, King Jesus rules, it speaks of His arrows. His arrows are of the, the most sharpness you could ever have on any arrow. And He has perfect aim, King Jesus does. In all of His judgments, in all of His discernment, in all of His decisions, there is absolute perfect aim. The peoples fall under Him and His arrows are in the hearts of His enemies. There's a certain judgment that comes with this king. And he does have a throne. That's Psalm 45, 6. He has a throne and he is a king, possessing a kingdom. Look again, the second half of verse 6. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He has a perfect kingdom of righteousness. And of course, verse 7, he's anointed and exalted by God. The Son of God being anointed. Isn't this amazing when you look at verse 6? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So here, Jesus is being spoken of, and He's being called God. Verse 7, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Well, this can really trip people up if we don't have a broad understanding of God's revelation of Himself. If we don't recognize from all of Scripture how God has revealed Himself, not as one being and one person, but He is one being who is three persons. Here, the Son is being anointed by the Father. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Well, that's absolutely amazing. So the Son of God, who is mighty God, was sent into the world Though His great majesty, as described here in Psalm 45, we know, was largely concealed. If Jesus in His day were to simply say plainly to a fellow Jew, Psalm 45, that's me, here I am. They would go back perhaps and look up Psalm 45 and say, that's you, huh? Remember, there was nothing outwardly that was special about Jesus. He was average height. He was probably five foot five for that time in that place, maybe even shorter. And he was very simple looking, very plain looking. And you're a king, and God has anointed you, and you'll receive praise forever? Really? Well, his majesty was greatly concealed in his first advent. He was, of course, fairer than the sons of men but not in outward expression. He did bear authority. He did bear kingship as he walked on earth. But he didn't have that constant expression of his kingship. And there wasn't any explicit imposition of his kingship while he was on earth. He didn't overthrow the government. He didn't set up his earthly throne at that time. He didn't begin an earthly physical kingdom at that time, did he? He left his heavenly throne, but did not yet establish the throne on earth. Yet he has been betrothed. He's been given a bride. He has a bride, the church. And we are to call for his kingdom to come while we wait for him in faith and in purity. There are, of course, multiple New Testament uh, passages that speak of our relationship to Christ as His bride, but one I want to point out to you this morning is 2 Corinthians 11. Again, you can turn there if you'd like, but it'll be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 11, 
verses 1 to 3, talk about our relationship to Jesus as his bride. Paul writes to this church in Corinth and says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's a pretty fascinating passage, isn't it? And again, uh, we're going through 2 Corinthians normally on Sunday mornings, and this is one of those passages that we'll get to eventually. I can't give you a date, but we'll get there eventually, and we'll talk about it more then. But it's evident enough that Christ has a bride, and she is the church. Ephesians 5 states this quite plainly. Ephesians 5 teaches on the roles of husbands and wives, and those are defined by how Jesus serves His church and how His church submits to Him. And the marriage that we have as the church with Christ has clearly been initiated. And this is a relationship of exclusive fidelity. There is to be a relationship that the church has with the Lord Jesus that is pure, faithful, honest, and true. But just as Jesus' full expression of His kingship was concealed in His coming... So the church's full union to Christ is concealed during this age. It has not yet appeared what we will be. Remember that verse? And so who we are as the church, it hasn't been fully revealed and fully manifested yet as we are the bride of Christ. We are currently betrothed. I mean, again, that's clear enough. As His church, we've been given to Christ. Paul uses that language here, being betrothed. But there's coming a later date when we will be presented. As you think through the events of Psalm 45 and what's going to happen as the bride comes before the king, well, we haven't gotten to that point yet where we've been presented. Revelation 19 speaks of a supper. There's a supper coming. Now, we do have a supper every second Sunday of the month. We have communion here, and we observe the Lord's table. We practice the Lord's supper. But the marriage supper has not yet occurred. That's future. And when that happens, when we're presented to the groom, the church, it'll be evident to all people that we are who we are, the bride of Christ. Currently, our status is relatively hidden, but it won't be then. There's coming a wedding ceremony, and Revelation 19 says it's when the bride makes herself ready. As the bride makes herself ready, the supper will take place. The bride's appearance will be marked by splendor and beauty. On that day, it says of us, the church, when we're presented to Jesus, that we will be in white linen, white fine linen. And that linen, that clothing, those are the righteous deeds of the saints. What a beautiful day that will be. As the bride of Psalm 45 the church is to embrace this relationship with the Lord King. Remember, the bride is called to bow down to the King. Well, the church continually, as God's people, as we go through this life awaiting that future marriage supper, we are to continually submit to Him who loves us. 
Again, it says in Psalm 45 that the king loves her. The king desires her beauty. Jesus loves his church. He's building his church. He desires the beauty of the church. And how is the beauty of the church fully seen? How's the beauty of the church fully manifested? Well, it's in that purity. The righteous deeds of the saints that we'll be dressed in on that great day. That was Paul's concern for the church in Corinth. That should be our concern too. The marriage supper will be a ceremony that outshines any marriage supper that preceded it. In a way, you could say it'll be the last wedding ceremony in history. It'll be, it'll be the final wedding. A wedding that is the result of the groom's work in seeking out his bride. So, at Christmas time, when we think of Jesus in the manger, we often think of him as, of course, Messiah and Savior. The Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. We looked at last night, the glory of Israel, the light to the nations. And that is all true and good, and that should be remembered. But I want to challenge you this Christmas to also think of him as a royal groom. Psalm 45 tells us that he's the king who's the groom. And when he came to earth, he was seeking out a people for his name. He came as the man who is God, come to redeem for himself a bride. Perhaps you can remember in John chapter 1, where it says, those who believe in him, he gave them the right to become children of God. We become children of the Father, and collectively we become the bride of the Son. Isn't that amazing? And the Son is the one who annually reminds us of his breaking into the world who daily refreshes us and calls us out of the world to be set apart for Him. And that's ultimately what Christmas is all about, isn't it? Not just remembering once a year the birth of Jesus. That's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. (laughs) Once a year to be reminded, that's okay. December is, you know, we we think about Jesus coming into the world month. That's what December is. Well, for the Christian one who is a member of the body of Christ, one who is a member of the bride, we are to be reminded daily, to be refreshed daily by the Spirit that we are His. We belong to Him. He's calling us out of the world to live for Him. That's the gospel, that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, came here to redeem for Himself a people. And He did so through living the only perfect life that's ever been lived, being the true spotless lamb who died on the cross in our place for our sins, who rose again, proving that he is who he said he was, that those who trust in him by faith alone, by grace through faith, would be his forever and truly forever. You think after that marriage supper, Jesus is ever going to divorce you? Not a chance. You will be His forever. And what a privileged position we will share in the King's palace that we read in Psalm 45. Better is one day in His courts than a thousand elsewhere. And we will spend all eternity with the King. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You 
for what you have done. And we ask that you would bless this Christmas day by helping us to grow in faith. There are certain gifts that will last forever. And Lord, we ask that today we would grab hold of those gifts, that we would lay hold of what you have given, and that we would cherish this eternal life that we have through Christ. God, help us to remain focused on you, not just today, but every day, because you are our maker and you have drawn us to yourself that we would bring you glory forever and ever. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.